if you're wondering where to start, that's exactly what you ought to do, I think, is take that time. Yes, it will help your visibility, but actually more than anything, like you say, it builds that rapport. It builds that relationship. It puts a name to the face in terms of people knowing who you are, but you also knowing who they are. Welcome to the Bragworthy Culture Podcast, where founders and business leaders talk about how they built a company culture that is so incredible, their employees brag about it. Our show aims to inspire you as you build a Bragworthy culture of your own. Culture building is philosophical and practical, and you'll find both discussed here. Grab a pen and a notebook. We're about to drop some knowledge. This episode is brought to you by Fringe, the number one employee lifestyle and fringe benefits platform. With Fringe, you can empower employees with lifestyle benefits that can be personalized to reduce stress, give back time, and spark joy. Fringe, benefits for life. Contact us and find out more at fringe.us. Here's your host, Cassandra Rose. Hello, everyone. Thank you again for joining us for the Brag Worthy Culture Podcast. My name is Cassandra Rose, and I'll be your host today. And I am pleasantly joined by Dr. Alex. Dr. Alex, thank you so much for coming back onto the podcast. Thanks, Cassandra. It's a real joy. I had such a great time last time. I thought I've definitely got to do that again this year. So thank well, you. I'm going to front load it and just say, since this is your second time, maybe you should like audition to be a third timer or fourth timer. <laughs> and we can keep track from year to year of you coming back and just regaling us with all of the good information that you're doing. So I want to dig a little deeper than even last time and learn more about you on a personal level. I loved the fun facts about the dancing. I won't bring that up if you don't want me to. <laughs> But tell us your story. How did you go from coming to the earth to becoming a cultural anthropologist at your company? Wow, that's, I mean, there's a big story there. And I guess it's a matter (laughs) of where do we want to start? Let's see. I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia. Grew up in metro Atlanta. I now live in England, in York, the original York, not the new one. And I've been here in the UK for probably about, I've lost count, to be honest with you, probably about 12 years on and off. I've done all of my postgraduate study here in the UK. Partly because I was 21 in my third year at the University of Georgia, did an exchange at Oxford, and just fell in love with Scotland. So I was just desperate to um, to find a way to come here and make a living here. It's been a long journey, but here we are. So in terms of becoming a cultural anthropologist, Cassandra, I used to work actually in the nonprofit space in the U.S. So after I finished college, I did my first degree in international relations, but I didn't really want to do anything with that. So I, I was working in nonprofits kind of around just different churches and ministries, actually. Really loved my time doing that and eventually took an internship kind of working in recruiting and training for church groups that do some overseas charity missionary development work. And uh, one of the guys that was actually working there was he was a cultural anthropologist. He had a PhD in anthropology. He was their head of training. And I just loved everything that he was saying. And I, I remember saying to him one day, shortly after I met him, I was like, I'm coming back for your job someday. Because the idea of, you know, we could take something that seems so self evident to us, but actually realize wait, there are other people around the world who might even have the same core beliefs that we do, but see that Mm -hmm. issue or see that symbol or see that topic in a totally different manner. Not to say it's wrong, but it's just different. And you're like, wow, that's totally fascinating. I had no idea that someone else that I could be so aligned with might have such a totally different experience. So I, you know, was really moved by him and his, uh, his influence, still in touch with him as a mentor. And I knew I was going to do a theology master's uh, in Scotland, because that was part of coming back over here. That's when I was in the uh, Scottish Country Dance Society at Aberdeen University. 
I still not forgotten the steps. It's been a very long time, but uh, I've still not forgotten a lot of the steps. But yeah, I was a master's in theology and then thought I'd do one in social or cultural anthropology right after that. So I did two masters back to back. And I realized I was a far better anthropologist than I was a theologian. (laughs) 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 And I liked it a lot more. So decided to, um, I had a really good master's thesis topic and decided to come back to Edinburgh where I was doing that, that master's to do a PhD there. So that got me kind of the anthropology qualification. And I was working, I finished my PhD. I was working as a teaching fellow. So kind of a, like a, a contract professor at the University of Edinburgh. And my contract was coming up and I was kind of thinking, what do I really want to do here? You know, do I want to keep trying to pursue an academic career, which I love the teaching side of it. I love the people development. But I also thought, you know, I could take this way of thinking, this method of research, some of this theory and really kind of apply it to something that feels like it makes a difference. I had a really interesting PhD topic actually kind of exploded since and become quite mainstream. But I also just wanted to do something that helped people. I've got that really strong sense of purpose. I want to do something good in the world. I want to help people. And I guess it's kind of summed up now with what I do. I'm a resident anthropologist at a company called Scarlet Abbott. We're an employee engagement consultancy here in England. But I'd put my personal mission statement as to make work not suck for people. I think work is such an important part of our lives. We spend so much time, so much, not just time, but also energy and effort into developing our careers and the work that we do. I'm not saying it should always all be great but it shouldn't be miserable. I think we've all had that feeling of sometimes I just don't want to go in today. I don't want to get out of bed, not because it's freezing, but just because actually I don't really like what I'm doing right now. Again, I think all jobs are like that sometimes, but I really have a passion to reduce that feeling for people so that actually we're not stuck in that, I guess, that misery. So. Yeah, I love that mantra. I may have to adopt it for myself. I'll give you credit the first few times, <laughs> then I'll take that's, it. Make cool. work not suck. And why I like that you're using the inverse of that, because you could just say make work better or make work happy. It's that spectrum of thinking through what work is. And I love that you said that it's so important to our culture, the way that we identify. We ask young kids who may not even be able to say the entire alphabet, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's integrated into almost every aspect of our lives. Totally. And yeah, we always ask people like, oh, what do you do when you meet someone new? So when I was working in that charity recruitment job, part of what I did was if anyone was interested in working with us, whether that was a summer internship or actually just moving overseas permanently, one of the first things I do is just fill out an online form, kind of a little about who they are. And then I would take a screening call with them. I had a little fun with this, actually, because I realized quite early on, I could ask them, oh, what do you do? But then I actually thought, let's get creative with this and kind of do a little experiment. So I started to ask people, who's Cassandra Rose? Kind of like you started with me, like, what's your story? Who is Dr. Alex? And one thing I thought was so interesting about that was I would speak to younger people, maybe like college students looking for an internship or people just graduated, wanting to spend a few years abroad. And they'd say, I really appreciate you asking me that because this is in 2010. They'd be like, well, you know, because of the recession, I just graduated. So I make coffee in the day but I'm really passionate about making music. And it was interesting how a lot of younger people will kind of say, yeah, you know, they're making a statement. I'm not what I do for a living. I'm what I'm Mm -hmm. passionate about. Whereas a lot of people, maybe they were retiring and thinking about doing some charity work overseas. They'd say, oh yeah, I've been a lawyer for 30 years or work in accounting or HR. They'd tell me what they did. When I'd ask, what's your story? They'd say, oh, here's what I do for a living. Whereas again, younger people are very much this is what I'm passionate about. It's not my day job, but it's what my passion is. Thinking about myself growing up, thinking about a lot of those people I spoke to now growing up. I think there is that relationship of hopefully we're doing something we're interested and passionate about. 
but work, as you're saying, is something that's integral to our identities for mm-hmm. better or worse. So I think there's an aspect of, yeah, let's make it good for people. Yeah. And I love that you said that it's part of our identity. So how do we make it better? So how did you transition from this wonderful world of nonprofit teaching, working with Christian organizations to this world of profit? Because sometimes people mm-hmm. feel like that's a betrayal. Sometimes people feel like, I don't know if I can work in that world, but you can be both purpose-driven and profit-driven. And sometimes that can feel a little juxtaposed. So tell me more about mm-hmm. how you made that decision to go yeah, to Charlie so- Abbott. I think that's a really good question, Sandra. I think part of it was, if I'm honest, part of it is coming from academia. When you're starting off as an as an early career academic, it's very unstable. So there is that sense of actually, what do I want? Do I want to keep moving cities every six months to a year, applying for a new job, even though I'm good at this one and can settle where I am? Do I want something a bit more stable? And I think that, you know, again, especially for a lot of, I guess I myself am an older millennial, but I think that there are a lot of us that are very passion-driven that think, oh, I have to do something that's passionate and just good in the world. It can't be a business. I like you. I don't think that they're necessarily contradictory. I think that you can use well to do good things in the world. I know a lot of people say that they do, and whether or not we say we do or whether or not we actually do can be two different things. But I really feel quite strongly that businesses are part of our society. That's the way things are. You may disagree with that. I know a lot of people on TikTok, but you kind of have to take things as they are and say, how do I make things as best as I can within that system? I'm not a revolutionary in that dial. I'm not here to overthrow everything. I'm here to kind of reform things and make things better with what we have. And be honest, Cassandra, there are frustrations with that sometimes. Sometimes you do have very stubborn clients or certain mindsets that you run up against all the time, especially in this space of employee engagement, organizational culture. It's not a priority to some people and some leaders, but then actually when they realize kind of the, the human toll when it comes to burnout or attrition, resignations, quiet quitting, all these issues that we're seeing in the news, not just kind of in our circle of people who are interested in this stuff, but really like national news, big national conversations. I think it's getting people to pay attention and say, well, okay, yeah, there's got to be a balance here of how, how can we still be profitable, still do what we do, still be a business, but also take care of our people. And I love that evolution. I, as an HR professional, have done a lot of research about how did this plan even come to be? You know, when we think about um, employees and management, a lot of times it starts with unions and thinking like, oh my goodness, people have to fight for the right to like have a day off, let alone a weekend. (laughs) Or, you know, if they got hurt at work to be paid and compensated because they could no longer work at that same capacity. And fast forward almost a hundred years later, there are still some companies who are in industries dealing with those issues, but I love what you said about organizational culture, understanding it in such a way that you're actually curating an experience that can actually lead to better outcomes, not just for your bottom line, but for your people. I mean, hopefully you're getting better entry, Scarlett Abbott is, into organizations that are allowing you to have that voice and influence to make those changes. And I know a huge part of your work is around ethnography. So explain mm-hmm. to all of us, what does that mean? I think it's a really good, good shout. So ethnography is, it's what we do as anthropologists. So it's the idea that actually, let me back up. So a lot of what we do, or yes, we do at Scarlet Abbott, I myself, but also a lot of what people rely on in HR and employee engagement are the good old survey. I think there's a lot of value in surveys. I'm not anti-survey. I I think people meet me, they're like, oh gosh, he's really anti-survey. I'm really not. (laughs) I'm really just anti one-dimensional points of view. And I think a survey gives you a nice 30,000 foot view 
but I don't think any of us actually live our lives thinking, you know what, I'm 68% satisfied with my job today. Or actually, I feel like sense of purpose, 78% of, of today, you know? And, <laughs> I, and if, I've felt that way, Dr. Alex. Uh, ha, ha, have you it? If you think in percentages, <laughs> I've been looking for you because I've been doing a lot of talks and teasing a lot of people saying, if you think that way, and if you think in percents on a daily basis, A, I want to talk to you and B, we need to find you a therapist really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think it's quite exceptional though, that people think weighed up like that. I think that surveys, again, give us that good view of actually something's not right here, or maybe I'm mostly satisfied, partly dissatisfied. But the detail of what that looks like and why, especially if you're in a big organization, some of my clients are a couple thousand, some of them are over 10,000 employees. And you kind of think, well, how do you actually, what does that mean for all these different people, especially if they're in different roles, whether they're in manufacturing on the shop or in supermarkets or whatever it is, their experience is going to be pretty different. And so one of the things I used to tell my students when I was teaching all the time is that numbers have faces and statistics have stories. That's another one of my mantras, because I think it really captures that there's more detail. There's a lived human experience on the other side of that statistic. When we say that, again, 30, you know, maybe our workforce is 32% engaged. There are real people who have real experiences that make them feel that way. So ethnography is, it's a qualitative research method that anthropologists use to kind of immerse themselves in the world of whoever it is they're trying to understand and research. So it kind of, you know, in this context would be a lot of kind of shadowing in person or online journals, things like that, just to get a sense of actually what are, what's people's everyday actually like, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of what's a meeting like, for example, because we all kind of assume, oh, a meeting is the same wherever you go, but actually we've all been to good meetings and bad meetings. And I think those of us that are a bit reflexive will be like, why was that a bad meeting? What was there something I did wrong? Was there something lacking in structure? Did we not kind of express what we're trying to get out of or how we do things in our organization? I think it's ethnography is about, yeah, just being there on the ground or trying to get that perspective as a fly on the wall to understand what is this really like here? How do things work around here? What does it feel like in terms of that social interaction piece? How do people here relate to each other? Are they really jovial and cordial? And then when they go away and break up a meeting, talk behind each other's backs. It's not just to get the gossip. It's actually to kind of find out what's the culture actually like on the ground here. That sounds like A, a lot of work. <laughs> B, a lot of trust building because people are seeing you as this outsider coming in. Some people are going to be excited that you're there because it's a, someone else they can share their voice with and truly feel like it's going to be confidential and it's going to be understood. Where other people, and I'm just assuming here, might feel like you're just a spy for my manager. Like you're going to get the gossip, you're going to get the tea, and then bring it back to the organization. So how do you balance building trust when you know that you're not going to be embedded in the organization forever yeah. and then build the business case? I think that's such a huge question, Cassandra. And I think you're right to say it. trust is everything. And I think part of it is framing, and again, for me, this is a really important thing, is I had that genuine desire to understand people's worlds, to be their advocate. I was with a client doing some research a couple, six weeks ago. And, you know, people said, how am I going to know that what we're doing, what I'm telling you is actually going to make a difference? And I think it's really hard because the truth is I'm at the mercy of my clients and their stakeholders in terms of what I share, what goes in the report. I think as a, out of principle and just Part of my training, I think anthropologists are very ethically committed to doing things a certain way, protecting their informants' identities as much as we can, anonymity, confidentiality. 
But I also, the same, the thing I told some of these people who work in a manufacturing environment was, I know that you raise these things in the surveys because I see the survey results too. My hope is that I've got this qualification that will let me into that conversation, that'll let me into the boardroom to share your voice. Whether or not they take that seriously, again, I'm not in control of that. But what I can do is promise to share your story and share your opinion, your experience as faithfully as I can. And when I write my reports, that's exactly what I try to do. It's quite, it's a powerful thing when people let you into, your, into their world and give you that kind of trust and that kind of insight. I think it's a really powerful thing personally. It's also a powerful thing in terms of what it can actually do if leaders are willing to listen. And again, there are challenges there for sure, but that doesn't mean that people aren't receptive. I've definitely had C-suite leaders that are very receptive to what I'm doing. They're very supportive to what I'm doing. I'm always a big advocate of if leaders actually want to take more of that approach and spend more time with their people to do that listening firsthand. I'm all for that. But it really starts with, as you say, trust, but also framing that as I'm here to understand. We're mm-hmm. not here to hurt you. We're not here to make your life worse. We're here to understand so that we can be your advocate. And I think because a lot of my clients are in employee communications or internal communications, they're quite well-placed as well as some HR clients. They're quite well-placed to be that we're here to listen to what you're saying, whether that's in surveys or focus groups. So actually latching on to existing work in that space is, is quite an easy transition for me. That's awesome. So for our audience listening in who may seek your services after listening to this (laughs) or just are in the throes of even trying to figure out where do I begin? Like, even if I wanted to create a survey internally, Mm -hmm. what would be your best advice around creating cultures of belonging? Mm Because if you have all these data points and are able to bring in a cultural anthropologist, which is a privilege to be able to do that in your organization, I love what you said the leaders also have to listen. They have to be receptive and open because that feedback may be highly constructive to almost detrimental and now make decisions based on this new input. What would be your advice of how they they can move their culture forward? It's a really good question, Cassandra. I think everyone's on, on a different part of that journey. I think, again, if you're not sure how to start a survey, there's all kinds of tools out there to try to help you to start there. I think the most important starting point, I think the one uniform starting point is really having that intent to listen and to understand. I don't think that necessarily, especially if you're literally kind of at the starting line and there's nothing else you're doing, just start talking to people. We can system, you can find ways to formalize and systematically collect that data, but be present, ask, spend time with different teams, with different people, if you can, just get a perspective on, Hey, what's it like in your corner of the organization? Tell me about your role. I think it starts with that curiosity and that curiosity is also tied into, again, just a genuine interest in others and a desire to, to understand. Totally take on, on board what you're saying, like, you know, what I do, A, it's a privilege for me, but you're right that for a lot of clients, it is a privilege as well to bring in that level of expertise. But I think to start listening, to start getting the contours of what's important here, what's on people's minds, I think that's the first starting point of starting points. Awesome. I completely agree with that. There's been a lot of grassroots things that I just had to do. And now being here as a head of people at Fringe, I haven't been here in 90 days, but I'm committed to meeting with each and every employee for 30 minutes. And one of the great things about that, it builds that relationship by building trust by saying, I believe that you're so important to the organization that I want to spend time hearing what your day is like. Because I can see it in a survey. I can see it in the reports that come out from my HR system. 
but you're a human being and the nuances that you bring to that role are different than the person who has the exact same job title with you. So kudos to giving that advice. A hundred percent. I love that you're doing that as well, especially as a new leader of actually just taking that time. Because again, if for other leaders that might be listening, if you're wondering where to start, that's exactly what you ought to do, I think, is take that time. Yes, it will help your visibility, but actually more than anything, like you say, it builds that rapport. It builds that relationship. It puts a name to the face in terms of people knowing who you are, but you also knowing who they are. And again, remembering that, yeah, there's a lot of hard work that people do and we can get stuck in the thick of it. We can disagree, but actually remembering there's a human being with their own interests, with their own passions, with their own struggles. Uh, with their own dreams, aspirations, et cetera, on the other side of that call, whether that's a Zoom box or face-to-face, I think this is a huge, huge thing to remember. And I think that, you know, speaking of Zoom, that's one thing that is a challenge, I think, for some organizations, especially with big global teams of remembering, hey, that person on the other end of the line who you've only ever met as a box on Mm -hmm. a screen is a real human person. I love that you brought that up because I feel like Zoom... WebEx, whatever platform you're personally using internally is the ultimate equalizer because we all have the same office space in that two by two square. (laughs) You don't know how tall someone is. You don't know how many years of experience, like literally for the same shape and size for the most part when we're meeting virtually. Do you feel like that's contributed to some of the big issues of the day, like you're saying, that aren't just national but global about quiet quitting and the great resignation? Like, how do you feel that this hybrid, hopefully now post-pandemic world has affected what you're studying and how employee engagement should be looked at moving forward. I think there's some really good questions there, Cassandra. I think, I guess one of the one of the first things that jumps to mind is I remember early on in the pandemic, people like, oh, our cultures, we won't have a culture anymore if we're meeting on Zoom. And that's just nonsense, right? It, it changes, right? We always have a culture as long as people are interlinked. It's a matter of what does that culture look like? I think there's some, as you say, there's some really great equalizers that you could be the CEO and you could be a day two intern and you could be on the same call and you have the same same size. (laughs) I think it could be a real equalizer in that sense. I think probably my default sense though, is that a lot of technology is a double-edged sword. That's a really good thing. But in terms of if that day two intern is based in a small town in, let's just choose Georgia, that's where I'm from. And the CEO is in DC. They could go months without actually ever meeting. And there's that strain of that human connection is an important thing. I think there is a lot of value in the face-to-face aspect. I'm a big fan of hybrid because I'll just be honest, I like an extra 30 minutes to be able to sleep in on my work from home days. I like that. I like that. But I also know from an anthropological perspective, there is something really powerful in us being in the same place and experiencing things together. I think one of the things, I guess my thoughts are still kind of developing on this, but I think that actually hybrid has really changed how we think about time at work, because I think we are always scrambling to fit something in the diary now. And we're on, a lot of people are on back-to-back calls all day instead of, it used to be, you might have back-to-back meetings, but you still had to go to another meeting room across the way or on another floor or maybe at a different client site. So you'd have some of those natural breaks. The meeting would take some time to start. You'd have time to kind of have that chat with people just to hear about the weekend or talk about lunch. I'm not saying we can't have that in a hybrid world. I think we can, but I think we have to be intentional about that. And I think that our default sense of time in a hybrid context is let's fill the diary as opposed Mm -hmm. to remembering, actually, we need time to breathe. Sometimes I look at at senior colleagues day to try to schedule a meeting in there, just talk about something. And I'm like, when do you have time for lunch? 
when do you actually have time for you to kind of just even think? Or I think with a lot of research participants I've spoken to, there's that sense of, I don't even have time to think because from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m., I'm on back-to-back calls with basically, I can run to the restroom if I need to. That's about it. When do I find time for lunch? I don't know. I think that's something that is a challenge with hybrid in terms of, yes, I know things are busy, but I think part of hybrid enabling that connection, or especially with a lot of global teams who might have colleagues in Asia, whether it's in India or Mm -hmm. China, Japan, handing over to the European colleagues, handing over to the US colleagues. I think there's still some growing pains there. But I think that sense of how we connect, how we make sure we still have that human connection, whether that's face-to-face or how we intentionally curate that, I think is a really important thing. I think we're still starting to figure out. Yeah. And I agree with you that sometimes we almost are a little too dominant on expecting that just because we're all in the same place, that culture will just naturally organically come out of it. There has been times where you hear about the tech companies of the world who have the net pods and the hacky sack (laughs) and dry cleaning on site, right? And you're like, oh, that must be awesome. But what I usually tell uh, people is that I've worked at companies that were worth hundreds of billions of dollars. And it's very easy when you have a deep pocket to be able to like add this benefit or add this perk. But those same companies still struggle with, say, DEI issues. They still have wrongful terminations, right? So there's no silver bullet that any one company has. But as we wind down our time here together today and really honoring the title of this podcast, Bragworthy Culture, can you think of a company or two, and you don't have to reveal the names, (laughs) where you felt like they're getting a lot of it right. They're just really, really doing the work and evolving and moving in a way that I wish this was a template for most organizations. I think there are some clients that I'm really proud to work with and really proud to work for. I think in terms of just having leaders that will listen and take that time and kind of say, well, no, this is actually really important. This isn't just a formality to do a quarterly pulse survey. I think I'm really proud to work with some of those clients that really take that on. Other clients that we recently helped, Global Entertainment Company, who everyone would know if I, if I could say their name, redevelop their values. One of the things I really loved was they're on a call with the C-suite and the rest of the Steerco, and they said, we can sit down in a room, take an hour, and between the 10 of us, just bash this out. But that's not the right way to do this. I want all of our employees to have an opportunity to yeah. input in terms of if that's we're literally going to put on the wall and say, this is who we are. We all need to be able to have a voice. And I mean, credit to them. They, yes, we did a lot of different surveys to kind of test a lot of different ideas and gauge what was important to them. We also did over 100 focus groups with people all over the world in East Asia, throughout Europe, and all over the US. And I'm really proud of that company because I think, again, it's not just what the values ended up being. It was also their approach to actually saying, how do we build our culture? How do we find out what behaviors are important to us? What is actually important to our employees? And again, not just kind of taking it by the horns themselves and doing it for employees, but actually Mm -hmm. taking the time to listen. So again, I think the ones that are doing it really well are the ones being really intentional and investing that time to listen and to understand. I think to kind of piggyback off the last question of how things are changing in hybrid, I think the dust is still settling for a lot of people and a lot of organizations in terms of what does our culture look like in this context? What does it mean for people's well-being? What does it mean for younger employees who need more of that face time and maybe more of that hands-on face-to-face training? I think there's loads we're still figuring out. And I think the companies that I would brag about are the ones that are saying, you know what, 
there's a lot we still need to figure out and let's go to our people and find out what this means for them. Well, I'm sure Scarlet Abbott is one of those organizations. I'll name it (laughs) (laughs) because if you're putting that much intention out into the world with your clients, I'm sure that you're doing so much so with your employees internally. Thanks, Cassandra. I'm really proud of what we're doing. I'm really proud to be part of what we're doing here and what we're building. Thank you. Well, Dr. Alex, I know everyone who listens to this podcast is taking away a lot of really good information. So if they want to get in contact with you, whether it's to procure your services or just to even, you know, have a 15 minute chat and really think through some of more of your experiences, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? So two things, Cassandra. One is probably LinkedIn. I'm Dr. Alex Caput, G-A-P-U-D. But I'm also launching a website just really as a resource with some of, I guess, my ideas as as an organizational anthropologist of here's some things I'm thinking about. Some of the things we've talked about today, like the numbers have faces, statistics have stories bit, but also, yeah, maybe I'll flesh out some of my thoughts on on how we think about time and experience time. Again, it might be some of the kookier, more abstract stuff, but it's kind of, here's how we can take this social scientific perspective and apply it to the world of work. So that website, it's still being built at the moment. My wife has helped me build it. Very, very proud of her. But the URL is anthropologyatwork.co.uk. So that's anthropologyatwork, just all one word, .co.uk. Awesome. Well, I am happy to be a beta tester. (laughs) Check it out. Well, again, Dr. Alex, what a pleasure to have you on. And I'm already inviting you back for your three-peat on this podcast. Awesome, Cassandra. Really looking forward. Again, it's always a blast to chat with you all. And again, just really excited and encouraged by what y'all are doing at Fringe and what you're building. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Bragworthy Culture Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Fringe, the number one employee lifestyle and fringe benefits platform. With Fringe, you can empower employees with lifestyle benefits that can be personalized to reduce stress, give back time, and spark joy. Fringe, benefits for life. Contact us and find out more at fringe.us.